I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Join me in a very warm welcome for Julia and Chloe. Thank you. There's a lot of pressure on, on transgender and transsexual people to write autobiographically. We have this, this long history of writing memoir, uh, which traditionally has been the, the main way through which trans people have explained the sort of explorations of their gender identities mm-hmm. to a kind of wider public as a way of cutting through sensationalistic uh, mainstream media coverage. So there's this, mm-hmm. this long history of the genre that, that goes right back to the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very ambivalent about it because it had become something of a cliche. Um, a lot of trans people actually had moved away from, from, from the idea of, of writing memoir and were more interested in theory that dealt with gender identity and the lived mm. experience of it. Mm. Um, and this struck me as, as a sort of interesting distinction because a lot of the um, theoretical writers I really <coughs> liked, um, Kate Bornstein, Leslie Feinberg... Um, Vivian the Mast, um, Julia Serrano, people are writing in the 90s and noughties. Um, not all of them, but some of them, I'd say most of them, mm. uh, brought in an awful lot of lived experience mm. uh, as a way of kind of testing the theory of developing it, this sort of lived praxis. Mm. Um, and I found that a really interesting thing to try and explore in this autobiographical format. Mm. Um, I mean, part of it was just the circumstances. I mean, I felt that there was an awful lot of interesting trans theory. Uh, that was speaking largely to the trans community was very useful to us in developing uh, our own terminology, our ways of living. Um, outsiders never really seemed that familiar with it. I got very frustrated with trying to sort of explain my gender identity to outsiders using the language that I gleaned from from these theorists that I was talking about. And I thought, you know, is there is there a way to bring, uh, you know, some of these ideas, some of the sort of cultural, political history of, of trans and kind of queer people, um, is there any way to bring that to a wider audience? And I was trying to, to do more journalism on it, and I found that editors only really wanted me to write autobiographically. Um, I did, did the first three pieces for The Guardian in 2009, uh, and they liked the first one about kind of childhood up to the age of 22. Mm. They liked the third one, which was the first week of living as Juliet, They didn't like the second one. They said it had too much theory and politics and could I make the personal stuff um, the focus of it Mm. and sort of make the politics and theory, um, you know, the subtext rather Mm. than the the main event. So 
So I sort of grudgingly rewrote it, and that actually made it work. And um, from then on, I, I sort of felt that using this autobiographical format, if I split the blog posts up kind of by subject rather than chronologically, mm. um, could provide an interesting starting point for a discussion of the sort of wider issues of trans living uh, rather than being, you know, the sort of purely solipsistic um, thing that the memoir can be if you're not careful with it. Mm. Um, I mean, from that, uh, the column went a lot better than I expected. Um, and, you know, people quite quickly started saying, are you going to turn it into a book? And I sort of said, I don't really feel an existential need to turn it into a book at this point. Mm. Um, and and I sort of found that, um, firstly, I just rubbed up against the same problem. I wanted to write a wider history of kind of trans people in Britain, um, and I sort of found that agents and publishers still only really wanted that kind of autobiographical framing. So it was kind of the same technique, was sort of looking at a way of taking a lot of that material, a lot of that mm. research I'd done, uh, identifying what were the sort of key um, political issues with kind of trans living that I wanted to reference, point people towards what the theoretical works were um, that I wanted to point people towards. And... Um, and try and find a way of bringing them into an autobiographical narrative. Um, an occasional temptation to defy that. Or to yeah, I mean, there was a lot of temptation to defy it. Um, sort of summer 2011, I think, was the hardest point because I'd done about 20 of the Guardian columns, and I thought, okay, I have to like think of something else now. Um, and and yeah, I was working on this this wider trans history, um, but I was also sort of thinking, well, well, what else can I do? I had an mm. idea for a novel. Uh, because I was kind of blogging and on the fringes of mainstream media, mm. had an idea for a novel which would be written as a sort of um, composite of different voices writing kind of blog posts, um, blogs for the mainstream media, blogs not for the mainstream media that kind of collided with each other in lots of interesting ways. And the idea was it was going to be a novel about um, the concept of freedom of speech and kind of who controls narratives. Um, and and I mean, I never quite worked this out. But there was going to be some sort of uh, you know inciting incident, which sort of caused the mainstream media maybe to kind of collapse it on itself, or the sort of functioning of its power to be kind of revealed. Um, and then the Leveson inquiry happened, uh, and I thought, well, that's like reality's written this for me. I don't need to do that. Um, and I just sort of thought, well, okay, my ideas are current. That's quite reassuring. Now I need to think of something else. Um, <laughs> Um, and I mean the the memoir. Um, you know, I was I was approached by an agent uh, mm. just after writing the surgery mm. piece for the Guardian, summer two thousand twelve. Was approached by an agent to turn it into a book, um, and I like the way he sort of suggested. Look, you know, you can talk a lot about film and literature and art and music and politics mm. and sport mm. and all these other things you're interested in, but you know, mm. just hook it onto a sort of memoir format. Mm. Um, and I think I said yes because I thought it'd be quick. Um, so I've done the Guardian thing. I can, yeah. you know, just like adapt that uh, and just throw in some stuff about the Smiths or something at the start. Um, and like writing a memoir is really hard. Um, much harder than I expected. Um, like I said, I mean, I, you know, I'd never read many memoirs actually. Uh, I'd read a lot more kind of fiction, uh, theory, plays, poetry mm-hmm. was what I tended to read. Um, some of the fiction you read. There was some blurring between the... Yeah, well, I became really interested in, in this sort of blurring. And, I mean, to talk about it first in terms of the actual memoirs I read, mm. uh, I wrote a book on a um, kind of post-war English novelist called Rainer Heppenstall, who was the subject of my master's thesis. 
Uh, and I found him interesting because a lot of his novels were very autobiographical. Um, and this caused him a lot of problems. There were his, his second and third books were a sort of pair. They're called Saturnine and The Lesser in Fortune. Mm. And he rewrote Saturnine, which um, he called a kind of picaresque novel in that it's told by a kind of picaresque or social rogue. Um, and the sort of serial um, episodes. Mm. Um, but he rewrote it and he said in the, he rewrote it as The Greater in Fortune. And in the introduction, he said he changed the name of the protagonist um, because a lot of the reviewers had basically formed a very negative impression of him mm. from his novels. Mm. Um, and he was sort of trying to get some distance from his own character. But at the same time, he's writing lots of memoirs about how he became a writer and living through the Second World War. Um, and basically the same stuff happens in the memoirs as in the fiction. So on one hand, he's trying to detach himself from this mm. kind of autobiographical interpretation. On another hand, he's um, sort of, I don't know, reinforcing it sounds a bit harsh, but, um, you know, those boundaries are kind of becoming blurred by means of him using the same material in two different forms. Um, the other memoir, the only other memoir that I really liked, uh, actually, um, this book became more interesting as more became known about its, uh, its writing. But um, I read uh, I Am Zlatan, which was the autobiography of the um, the professional football player Zlatan Ibrahimovic, and um, the people. So some people are laughing, so I can tell who is like familiar with this guy and who's not. Um, a little bit of background on that: Zlatan Ibrahimovic is one of the best football players in the world, um, and he, he's really divisive. Like basically, you either think he's like this sort of preening, egomaniacal charlatan um, who you know just spends his whole time wandering around doing nothing except trying to look flash. Or you think he's some sort of avant-garde genius who does things that most other people wouldn't even think of trying to do with a football, let alone actually pulling them off. And um, I'm firmly in the second camp. So, so I read his book. And the book is hilarious. Like, the book is full of... Um, was it ghostwritten? Or did he it's ghostwritten. It and it's ghostwritten by David Lagerkrantz, who has taken on... I think he's taken on Stig Larsson's mantle. Um, and is he a well-known ghostwriter? Well, he's a well-known writer. writer. He was on the cover of The Observer New Review a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So he ghostwrote this book. And he spent a lot of time talking to Ibrahimovic and wasn't that pleased with the results. Um, <laughs> so he just made up loads of the dialogue, basically. And there was, there's an interview with him uh, where he says, I made up the dialogue. I was trying to find the sort of literary Zlatan. And I was really disappointed because so much of the dialogue in this book is brilliant. Like the opening scene of I Am Zlatan is absolutely incredible. Like... Ibrahimovic joins Barcelona. He's become the most expensive football player in the world. Mm. Um, he's from a sort of, um, I think, Bosnian um, immigrant family in a sort of working class area of Malmo in Sweden. And so he's sort of his his whole life. He's sort of, you know, told himself he has to have the best car and the best clothes and the best watch and everything as a way of kind of getting ahead. Uh, and he turns up at Barcelona in his um, Ferrari Enzo. There's like eight of them ever made. And, you know, this is, this is his status symbol, his car. And he drives up to the training ground, and the manager of Barcelona, Josep Guardiola, um, comes out and says, Latan, we're not that kind of club. Like, even Messi, Iniesta, and Xavi, the kind of three best players in the world at that point, all play for Barcelona. He said, even they drive the company Audis that we give them. Mm. And this, uh, this paragraph concludes with the word, Latan was no longer Latan. <laughs> And he didn't say it, um, and apparently Lagerkrantz, <laughs> Lagerkrantz gave him the book, and Ibrahimovic's response was the words, 
what the fuck is this? I never said that. Um, and then, you know, Ibrahimovic sort of understood and, and then thought it was his story, apparently. Um, and the thing with Ibrahimovic is he's such a sort of cartoon character anyway. But yeah, you might as well just like make up a bunch of stuff that he said is no more, <laughs> no more ridiculous or kind of hilarious than what he's actually said. Um, yeah, but so um, so that was interesting in terms of the sort of blending of fiction. So did you feel a certain freedom after after that? Yeah, um, dialogue. Yeah, I mean, coming up with dialogue. Was, memory was, for dialogue. Yeah, I mean, in terms of memory for dialogue, I mean, there were certain lines in the book that you know were really kind of imprinted on my consciousness you know a few things my parents said like the very few occasions as a teenager where the issue of kind of gender identity came up and I wasn't Mm. out to them so of course any statement that was made in that context was incredibly loaded so there are a couple of direct quotes from my mum in the book about that a few other direct quotes from from my parents where I can remember exactly what they've said uh quite a lot of places where I've just used just cut and paste emails uh, into the text. Uh, it's mm. a really good way of meeting your word count. Um, <laughs> so, sort of cut and paste emails and some responses into the text. And there's a few places where I can sort of remember the dialogue. Mm. Um, and there's some places where I can remember bits of the dialogue. Mm. And the process I used where I couldn't remember the dialogue, mm. I could remember bits of it, was to um, kind of write my own dialogue. And I was like, yeah, you know, this is somehow representative of the kind of thing that I might say. Um, and then, you know, where my friends were, were in the text and I had their dialogue, would, would basically write the dialogue and then send them the chapters as I did them and just say, look, are you all right with this? Um, and there were two bits of this that um, were particularly uh, good fun to do. I think these were my favourite bits of the process. Um, I mentioned Joe, who is kind of the main friendship throughout the book. And, um, you know, in the absence of... Um, of other kind of relations, uh, you know, the moment where I come out to him is, is particularly important. Um, so so I, I came out to him at a launch for one of his novels. Um, and he'd done this kind of very passive-aggressive kind of anti-performance rather than read from the book, uh, which meant that no one wanted to come and talk to us after the thing, <laughs> uh, which was good because it meant I got to tell him. And I said, like, how are you doing? He's like, I've got a book out, feeling kind of meh about it. What have you been up to? Um, I said, oh, yeah, like, I went to see the doctor. I'm, like, starting the gender reassignment process. So in the book, you know, I, says, I say, I went to the doctor about gender reassignment. I'm finally doing it. And they might not have been the exact words I used, but it's close enough. Um, so I say, he lit a cigarette. And then there's a pause, and he says, will you still support Norwich? <laughs> Which is genuinely what he said. Um, <laughs> and I say, no, Ipswich, I reply. <laughs> of course I'll still support Norwich. Why wouldn't I? And uh, so we went over this exchange on the phone to make sure he was happy with it. And I said, okay, Joe, so your next line then is, because you're shit? Um, And he just stopped and said, I don't think I actually said that, but it's hilarious, leave it in. Um, And, you know, there's a lot in the book about factory records and, you know, that famous Tony Wilson quote Mm. where he says, if you're torn between going with the truth and the myth, go with the myth. Um, But the point is, like, the dialogue had to be sort of truthful, even if it's not kind of Mm. word for word. Hence, checking it with people. Mm. Um, yeah, there's some places where it just serves a certain narrative function. Mm. Uh, there's a long scene where I go on a train journey with uh, my friend Lindsay. And I'm going to the gender reassignment clinic in Hammersmith for the first time. And of course, you know, this conversation on the train has to serve a certain function in terms of talking about you know, what the responses have been like, how I feel about going to the clinic, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, 
but I didn't record that conversation, so it's it's you know it, it can't be it can't be word for word accurate. But we like we sat down together. I sent her the chapter, and she said, "Look, you know, I think this can be better in terms of capturing how we talk to each other." Um, so we we like went for lunch and I sat in front of a computer um, and just like rewrote this dialogue. And actually, it was one of the nicest hours of my life. It was really really good fun. Um, I mean, I think my favourite part of this whole process was. Um, was Joe Stretch sending me text messages, uh, just suggesting bits of dialogue um, for me to use, or just bits of text. And I'd just get a text message saying something like, in walked Joe Stretch, now an award-winning novelist. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly keen to solve any problems that I or anyone else might have had. And I looked at that and laughed, and as I was laughing, I get another text saying, that sentence needs a full stop, said Joe, helpfully. Um, so yeah, the, the dialogue was a really interesting part of the process. I mean... I wanted to um, to kind of go in this kind of more autofiction direction. That's the kind of writing that excites me the most now. Mm. Um, as uh, when I was doing the the uh, book on Heppenstall, I read an essay by the uh, French nouveau roman author Natalie Sarraud called "The Age of Suspicion." It was published about fifty years ago. Uh, but Sarraud basically argues that at that point in time, she didn't feel that you know readers just believed characters anymore in the way they maybe believed characters <laughs> in the age of Dickens or Zola. or something. <laughs> Um, and that readers would sort of basically feel that any character on some level was sort of a representation or a refraction of the writer. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's quite an interesting line of writing at the moment of, um, of people who kind of take that idea and run with it. Um, mm. And there are three people that have particularly caught my imagination over the last few years. Um, one is Lars Eyer, who's written a series of kind of blog posts that he turned into books um, spurious Exodus and Dogma, where the central character is called Lars Eyre and the other character is called W. And basically it's sort of, um, I mean, these two guys, like, they're both philosophy lecturers and they dream of being kind of great philosophers. Um, but really they're just pathetic and they just keep, and so basically they've just put the entire canon of sort of Western philosophy, literature, art and film at the service of insulting each other. Um, and the sort of the key line in the whole thing is where um, they keep arguing over which one of them's Franz Kafka and which one of them's Max Brod. <laughs> and then they conclude that they're both Max Brod and they can never be anything more than that because um, the age of sort of great philosophy is, is over. Um, so, so that was a real inspiration. Um, Sheila Hetty um, appears um, at the end of the book mm-hmm. uh, and she interviews me about the narrative that's come before um, I really like Sheila's novel, How Should a Person Be?, which, again, the central character is called Sheila Hetty. All the characters in the book are her friends. Um, she recorded their conversations a lot and transcribed some of them for the book. Uh, there's all these sorts of incidents in the book that, like, some of them might have happened, some of them might not. Uh, you don't really know. Um, and getting her to interview me at the end of the memoir about a lot of these kind of processes, about my feelings about the boundaries between fiction and memoir and the use of narrative mm-hmm. and novelistic techniques mm-hmm. was sort of a nod to that. Um, it did also lead Claire, who introduced us, to coin the uh, composite name Hetty Jakes, which I'll be like, <laughs> eternally grateful for. Um, but I found that really interesting. And, you know, um, I think there are plenty of other people, past and present, how much um, time had lapsed after finishing the book before the interview? With the interview, it was more or less straight away. Um, I think maybe a couple of weeks, long enough for Sheila to read the manuscript for the rest of the text uh, and to come up with a response. I think it was two or three weeks mm. um, where I just like laid down in a darkened room for a bit. Um, so what was the writing process like 
I mean, in terms of uh, self-containment and hermeticism. It was really hermetic. From the beginning or gradually? From the second draft, really. The first draft um, was kind of, it took longer, uh, the first draft. And I sort of realized that the first draft wasn't going to work when I was only about halfway through it. Uh, but I had to kind of finish it anyway, which was quite a weird experience. But during the first draft, I was reading a lot more. I was um, working at St. Mary's Hospital at the time. Um, so I was doing it around a day job. And that's when you're in dialogue um, with old friends? And yeah, gathering. yeah. Um, although, I mean, one thing that meant the first draft didn't really work was because um, I think I thought it was somehow cheating to talk to old friends about kind of memories and experiences and what made the second draft work was starting to interview people like Joe, my friend Sarah in Manchester, who features a lot in the first chapter or two of the book. Uh, what made it work was talking to them and that gave me the sort of distance from myself mm. needed to turn myself into a character. Mm. Um, just as I was starting the second draft, um, I did an event like this. I interviewed um, the Belgian uh, writer Jean-Philippe Toussaint, who is one of my absolute favourite mm. contemporary novelists and obsessed with his work. Um, and I interviewed him about a volume of essays he'd published called Urgency and Patience, where he talks about how he writes. And he talks about reading as an ascent, and particularly things like Proust as kind of, you know, like scaling Everest or something. Um, and writing as a descent, and he talks about finding this sort of necessary depth to write, sort of removing yourself from mm. the sort of physical world um, to the point where you almost kind of can't see it anymore. Um, and then getting yourself into the sort of into some sort of removed headspace, I guess, mm. uh, which I then kind of tried to do off the back of that. I, I pinned out the paragraphs about that up on my desk over where I wrote because um, I sealed myself off and, and just realised I'd have kind of four months to write the final draft of this thing. Um, so it was very hermetic. I stopped reading, basically. Um, the only book... Uh, I didn't really even read any journalism. I didn't want any narratives to... Once I felt I kind of cracked the sort of style and tone of the voice uh, in the book, which are very close to Toussaint, actually. There's, there's, you know, I think he is the overwhelming stylistic influence on this book. But um, once I kind of cracked that tone um, and what I was going to do with the narrative, you know, I, I planned it meticulously. Each, the whole book had an opening, inciting incident, risks, climax and conclusion... Um, each chapter then had that same structure and then each episode in the chapters had that same structure so I knew exactly what was going to go where mm. I could move them around but mm. um, it was very structured and then it was a matter of just actually writing those scenes um, so so I kind of knew exactly what I was going to be doing I didn't want any other narratives at that point to uh, impinge on it so I kind of stopped reading journalism um, and I only read one book in the whole uh, five months um, that I was writing this, which um, is by a friend of mine, a guy called Hugh Lemmy. Um, a few people laughing so already know this was a book called Chubbs, The Demonization of My Working Arse, which is a piece of pornographic Owen Jones fan fiction. Um, and it felt sort of sufficiently removed from what I was doing. Um, uh, and I read it quite near the end as well. Um, so I read that, and I didn't really watch many films. I watched a handful of films. Mostly, actually, I just watched kind of video art mm. um, and went to galleries because it's, it's you know, a completely different mm. type of art without a kind of narrative in it. The other thing I did was, um, was the way I use music in the writing. Mm. Um, there's a lot of music in the book. Uh, several of the characters in the book uh, are in bands, actually quite a lot of them because I lived in Brighton. Um, 
There's no one in Brighton now who hasn't been in the band. Um, <laughs> last census. Um, uh, confirm that. Um, so, so there's lots of people who've been in bands. So I sort of listened to those bands. While you were writing. While I was writing. And one thing I found during the first draft was I'd found myself reaching for music that I hadn't heard for years and hadn't wanted to listen to for years. And it was kind of strange. So why am I digging that up? And realised, of course, that it was whatever I was listening to at the time I was writing about. Uh, so in the second draft, I did that kind of consciously. Mm. Um, so, you know, soundtracked a lot of the sort of 2001 to 3 chapters by just, like, looking up the strokes on YouTube and stuff like that, um, as well as, you know, the stuff I'd bought. Um, and I used a particular piece of music to try and get me into that psychological state that Toussaint talks about, where you're sufficiently removed from everything. And so mm. I, I picked uh, one piece of music by... a a German electronic artist called Wolfgang Voigt. He publishes as Gas. Uh, and it's a 10-minute kind of ambient loop that is so sort of soporific. But basically, I played it at the same time, more or less, every morning. Um, Only once or on a loop? Until I sort of got bored with it, um, um, which probably happened long after everybody else. But, um, uh, you know, it, it sort of... It, the idea was to, you know, make me sort of transition from the sort of state of checking my emails and eating breakfast to thinking mm. as myself as a character in a narrative taking place in about 2002. Um, I think it worked. <laughs> I've always been interested in your fascination with Bass, Jan Adder, yeah. the Dutch performance artist, and wonder, because a lot of his work is well, he's falling or things are happening, there's this fragility of his physical existence of this tenuous... Uh, Inhabiting whatever species and yeah, wondering what, how conscious the affinity was. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really obsessed with with Arda. It's one of my unhealthiest obsessions. Mm. Um, for those not familiar with him, Bastian Arda was a um, Dutch performance artist who did most of his work in um, Los Angeles. Uh, he's best known for a, a short piece of video art, three minutes long, called "I'm Too Sad to Tell You," which is just a film of him crying. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's obviously a very naked, raw honesty there, but also a mystery because he's deliberately withholding, you know, the emotion behind what he's signifying. Um, and so this piece of art becomes a kind of blank canvas. You know, I mm. think one of, the, one of the functions of art is to provide a sort of conduit for emotions that people find kind of difficult somehow to express, something you can identify with. And, of course, that boils that idea down to its absolute mm. kernel. Um, and actually, I wrote something about him uh, years ago. I wrote a piece of fiction that aimed to sort of blur the kind of boundaries between fact and fiction. I got very interested in people like David Peace, The Damned United, where you take kind of some real people or all real people and somehow fictionalise them. Uh, and the ethics of that are complicated. But um, I, I sort of wrote a narrator who had been given the camera by Arda and told to point it at him, and Arda starts crying, and the narrator... It's sort of speculating on the reasons why mm. Arda has sort of basically chosen them to make this film, and then they have a conversation about why they've made the film, mm. um, and then a conversation about Arda's final piece of work, which was a project called In Search of the Miraculous, and Arda disappeared during the course of that project, like the centrepiece of the project uh, was a solo um, trip across the Atlantic in, I think, what would have been the smallest boat ever to cross the Atlantic, and he disappeared in the course of it. Um, and the story's about that. Um, and it was kind of weird because, you know, at the time I wrote it, it was published in the London magazine. It was Mart Fiction. Was it in first uh, person? Uh, yeah, it was in first person. 
Um, so it got put on, and you know, it was written in 2008, like before I started using social media at all, really. And it got republished at the end of last year because I read it at an event. And then it was really kind of worrying because like loads of people were sharing it on Twitter saying like Juliette Jake's got this telegram from Bastianada. This is incredible. I was like, no, it's fiction. I wasn't, I wasn't alive when that happened. Um, and there's always like people tweeting 3AM magazine who published it saying, is this kosher? And they're like, no, it's fiction. And um, you know, I had to write to them and say, look, you, you kind of need to mark this more clearly because, you know, um, this is this is sort of problematic. Um but yeah, I mean, there's a vulnerability in a lot of his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you say, a lot of his work is is him falling, and then mm-hmm. sort of the films are sort of thirty seconds long. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one film where he just sets up a chair on the um, sloping roof of his house, sits on it, and you kind of you just watch this moment of vulnerability. And the the crux of the film is in that moment where the chair starts to slip, mm-hmm. and you watch him fall off, and he like grabs onto the roof of the house momentarily, and then can't stop himself falling off that as well. Um, and I like him because his works are very vulnerable. Uh, I find the gender politics of that very interesting. If it was a woman crying or falling off things, I think you'd respond to it very differently. Mm. Um, you know, as it is, this incredibly beautiful man. Mm. Um, and also, actually, his films are very, very funny. Um, I mean, the the four films are kind of slapstick, um, but there's one in particular where he basically uses falling over to solve a long-running dispute in Dutch modernist art. Um, <laughs> You have Mondrian and Dan Van Dosberg, and I forget which way round it is. I think it's Mondrian who felt that the purest form of artistic expression was in straight lines, and Van Dosberg saying, "No, you know, you can use diagonals as well." Uh, and you know, they huge row over this. You know, because um, avant-garde art circles are like that. Um, and Sebastian Arda does a film of himself just standing up straight, and he keeps trying to lean to a forty-five degree angle. <laughs> And he doesn't get to the 45-degree angle because he just falls over, so Mondrian wins. Um, I, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he was a huge influence on me. I mean, obviously, he's a video artist, um, didn't work in prose. Um, so not so much an influence on the actual, um, you know, kind of literary techniques, but someone who's, who's always in the back of my mind. Yeah. And would one necessarily... Uh, use the word confessional for him because what, what's interesting is that, that people seem to relegate it much more to female yeah. domain and theory more male, even though, of course, theory draws from personal experience as well, just more veiled or distanced. Uh, yeah. What about that? Yeah, I mean, art is interesting because he uses all the sort of techniques of confessionalism without confessing anything. Yeah. And that's the whole point. Um, you know, you see the raw emotion, and I'm too sad to tell you, but you don't know what's behind it. Um, so I find that very interesting in him. I mean, the the confessional label is kind of problematic anyway, yeah. right? I mean, I you know, know, confession implies some sort of level of shame um, about what you're kind of confessing. Uh, I think that's problematic. Um, I mean, I, I feel very awkward about using this sort of confessional uh, form. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's an invasion of privacy potentially to other people. And that was the, one of the biggest anxieties about this book is what are my parents going to think? What are my friends going to think? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having obviously when I came out as transsexual, you know, having to manage people's responses. And uh, that was, you know, obviously incredibly stressful. And then basically having to do it again in response to the Guardian series, then again in response to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, that was incredibly draining. By definition, have to be confessional. Um, do you think? No, it doesn't. Um, it depends if you're... No, absolutely not. No. Uh, I mean, I mentioned I Am Zlatan. It's like the most shameless <laughs> book I've ever read. Um, 
And um, uh, no, I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be structured in this sort of confessional way. Mm. Um, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I, d- I don't think many people would use the phrase confessional writing to describe themselves. I think it's one of those no. terms that's, that's always kind of, you know, imposed upon you. Um, mm. But, you know, so there's a, a possibility of, you know, invasion of privacy, damage to relationships. Um, you know, you have to keep in mind your relation to a wider community, I think, um, and avoid the sort of solipsism that, and narcissism that can mm. come with with that sort of, you know, even just first-person writing, whether you want to call it confessional or not. Mm. Um, you know, and I think you need to allow kind of other voices in. Um, and, you know, I hope this book does that by cutting between mm. personal chapters mm. and shorter kind of theoretical asides. Mm. Um, I mean, I got really obsessed with this idea of confessional journalism round about the time I finished the Guardian series. Um, and the book gets more kind of meta in the final third because the book mm. becomes about writing the Guardian series and about what that did to my life. Um, if you put yourself in a situation where everything in your life is potential copy, um, it does warp your relationship mm. with the world. Um, yeah, I wanted to discuss a bit your conflicted relationship with the media, yeah. the social media. I mean, yeah, so to sort of start off with that, you know, in the, the earlier stages of that, once, you know, because it was only a couple of months after I came out, as transsexual, that I had this deal in place to chronicle things for the Guardian. So, um, um, you know, quite early on, I sort of found myself getting in kind of difficult situations, and it was quite hard not to think, well, you know, how is this going to turn out, and will I be able to write about it? And, of course, you very quickly figure out what a just sort of stupid and kind of privileged and absurd attitude that is. And um, in the book, I write about the awful story of um, Christine Daniels in the US who was originally known as Mike Penner and wrote for the Los Angeles Times as a sports writer, came out as transsexual in 2007 and, you know, just wrote a one-off article. It went down incredibly well, so the paper persuaded her to chronicle her transition Mm -hmm. uh, in a blog. And um, as soon as she came out, uh, her wife left her... um, her relationship with the you know world of American sports journalism got very difficult. Uh, with various colleagues, weren't particularly accepting. Her relationship with a number of kind of trans activists quickly turned very sour. You know, a lot of them accused her of sort of reiterating certain negative stereotypes. Um, and she ended up by detransitioning and committing suicide. It's a really awful story. Uh, and I found out about this about six or seven episodes into the um, the Guardian thing. Um, when it kind of felt like I was sort of at the point of no return. Um, so that was very difficult. Um, and I found out about that through Twitter. Um, I don't want to talk about Twitter too much, because I feel like I spend most of my time moaning about it. And again, there's a few people who know me who are laughing at that. Um, do you use it every day? Uh, I do use it every day. Um, and I moan about it, but I'm really addicted to it. And, you know, a lot of the time, Twitter is just not a lot of fun. And it is just like people kind of screaming at each other. Um, and I, I find it very dispiriting. But every now and again, like the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom... Um, <laughs> the Daily Mail will run a front-page story uh, about something that he may or may not have done with the disembodied head of a pig... <laughs> to get into what somebody on Twitter described, and I quote as uh, a weird Oxford sex club for poshos. Um, and then Twitter is just the best thing ever. It's you know, the greatest invention in the history of mankind. Um, 
But I mean, that actually brings me on to someone else in the media that I wanted to talk about, which is uh, Liz Jones, who writes for the Mail. Uh, bear with me. Um, <laughs> I tried to interview Liz Jones around about the time I finished the Guardian series because I really wanted to talk to her about the way that um, this sort of confessional writing had complicated her life. I mean, she'd had a bullet through her door. She can't register with any high street banks. Uh, the people of Exmoor, where she's living, just hate her because of stuff she's written about them and the town. Um, and, you know, she did an interview with, I think it was Rachel Cook in The Guardian, where she says, look, I wouldn't recommend this sort of first-person writing to anyone. It just ruins your life. Um, so I really wanted to talk to Liz Jones about um, about how she felt about all of that. Um, you know, there'd been a big kind of outrage. Uh, I mean, there were lots of outrages on Twitter over Liz Jones. You know, mm. she published something in the mail. Um, <coughs> And it would be it would be a very first person, but it would be done in yeah such a sort of solipsistic or sort of narcissistic way as to kind of really really wind people up. I mean, quite famously, the Mail sent her to Somalia um, to report on you know poverty and starvation, um, and you know so Liz Jones kind of wrote about that, and um, there was an astonishing column she wrote. Uh, she famously like hates the NHS and refuses to use it, um, so she went to her private doctors saying, look, I need vaccinations before I go to Somalia. And they said, no, we can't do them. You need to go to the NHS. So she turns up at her local NHS clinic and they say, you know, who are you? And she says, I'm Liz Jones. And they say, okay, uh, you know, what's brought you here? And she says, I I need some jabs before I go traveling. And they said, "Um, are you registered with us? And she said, no. And they said, when are you going? And she said, tomorrow. And they couldn't give her the injections, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, she wrote this really angry piece about the NHS saying it was dreadful. Um, and, you know, it wound up a lot of left liberal people on Twitter, and a lot of her work does that. Um, and again, I mean, you know, round about the time I wanted to talk to her, she'd published a piece saying that um, she wanted to get pregnant, her partner didn't want a baby, uh, so she, like, just tried to get something out of discarded condom immediately after they'd had sex. Um, and, you know, again, like lots of people on Twitter got really angry about this. Um, and there's this sort of process at work where you basically have to incrementally keep mm. upping the ante in terms of kind of shocking mm. people mm. Um, to, um, to you know, kind of drive traffic. You know, it partly ties in with advertising. Advertising revenue is just linked to clicks on the Internet. Those clicks are purely quantitative. So it doesn't matter if people hate the stuff they're clicking on. That's not an issue. Um but I do wonder how that model is going to work now because the Daily Mail have published a front page story about the Prime Minister, um, you know, performing this act on a pig's head. Um, and whether or not it's true, um, it's going to be pretty hard for Liz Jones to top that. Um, or anyone. I mean, you know, really interesting kind of, you know, avant garde art and, you know, sort of Dardarists doing all these kind of, you know, rituals where they take the sort, you know, the George Grosch painting, Pillars of Society, where, you know, the heads of the bourgeoisie are removed and there's just steaming turds inside their heads. And you're like, they've got a few steps up on you, George. Um, so that's the kind of issue. So I ended up just, um, you know, I really kind of fell out of love with um, with social media. I used to really enjoy it. I used to really like this kind of project of sort of projecting a certain sense of self on social media through... Um, it was a know, while when of, you needed it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, at one point, you know, for example... I was getting a lot more abuse in the street. Um, early on in transition, got an awful lot of street harassment. Um, 
And it would be a really good outlet to just go on Twitter and say, look, this just happened to me. Or go on Facebook and say, this just happened to me. And have lots of other people say, look, just, you know, this has happened to me as well. Or this is what you can do. Or even just like, are you all right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, I, these, these things serve, serve an interesting function when you kind of need them. And it would be, you know, utterly stupid to condemn them as it would to just uncritically exalt them. Um, I found the way that sort of journalism had merged into sort of blogging, journalism, comment sections and social media sort of all coalesced in this kind of weird way, I found. Um, uh, you know, the sort do you of, think it's something particularly British? Or do you um, I don't know, really. Um, I mean, I can only really speak to the British context. Um, uh, and, you know, what the uh, mainstream media did, I think, in the kind of mid-noughties, mm. sensing a sort of democratisation that came with the internet, was to rely a lot more on opinion. Um, so would you read, for instance, the, the long commentaries below your Guardian pieces? Um, it would depend on what the pieces were. I generally find, as a rule... And following the feedback... The, the quality book. of the comment section on an article is inversely proportional to the quality of the article... So someone's written like a really terrible article. The comment section is an absolute riot. Um, <laughs> look up, for example, uh, Mike Reed, the DJ, wrote an article about why he was backing Boris Johnson for mayor of London in 2007, I think. Uh, and the article's not very good. And the comments are wonderful. Um, so, you know, quite often I spend like boring hours at work just constantly pressing refresh on those sorts of comments. Um, otherwise, not that much. Um, I mean, one thing that's happening now is like comments are moving over more to kind of Twitter and Facebook and other forms of media. Mm. Uh, the discussion isn't so centralised as it was ten years ago. Mm. You know, ten years ago you'd have above the line and below the line, um, and you know the the democratisation of these discourses I think has done something quite interesting to opinion journalism. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily made it redundant, but the sort of basis as to why you should have a sort of established opinionator and why their opinions are worth any more than kind of people on Twitter or bloggers or whatever, mm. uh, I think that's hard to justify. And so I think you might see journalism actually kind of, you know, move back to really what I think it should be doing anyway, which is kind of investigative reporting that you can't do unless you have money behind you. Mm. And, and certainly from talking to people in journalism, that seems to be the way things are going. I think that's a good thing. Um, and for you, what next... What next? More journalism, um, another book, fiction? Yeah, I mean, I've just started a PhD in creative writing, so I think there's, there's actually a level of withdrawal here. Um, you know, I feel I've kind of been on the front line of these sorts of discussions, uh, on and off, you know, over the last kind of five years. It's been quite fraught, um, and, you know, my, my way of dealing with it has actually been just kind of publish my pieces and otherwise keep out of a lot of these discussions. Um, but... Uh, you know, well, firstly, I don't have anything more to say about my own life. Like, that's it. Um, it's, it's done. And there's not going to be enough material for another book for a while. So there's no sequel. Um, are there any omissions? Are there any are there omissions? I mean, of you course. overlooked um, or very conscious I mean, characters? You know, um, when I was writing the book, uh, Damien Barr, who I think won, like, the Memoir of the Year Award last year for a book about Thatcher, um, he said that, autobiography is a story of a life and memoir is a story from a life. So, I mean, I guess there are lots of other ways I could write this memoir or a memoir. Mm. Um, You know, I mean, this book does bring in, like, music, football, 
literature, film in particular, politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is primarily a transition narrative, whereas, you know, I could just have easily written a book about my relationship with football or my relationship with music Mm -hmm. or, you know, a life story through favourite books. Uh, And, you know, these are all things that I think Nick Hornby has done, so I don't need to. But um, (laughs) he was from Red Hill too, but... um, um, my my sort of I, you know I I have no intention of writing autobiographically anymore. Mm. Um, you know I'd like to do more fiction. I would like to do more art criticism, um, film criticism, literary criticism, academic papers, which basically takes you back to where I was about ten years ago before all this started. So um, it's kind of gone full circle. Lorna, Lorna, well, you always have good questions, Lorna. Please, no, okay. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. That was absolutely fabulous, by the way. I loved every minute of it. And I think your presentation this evening is even more scandalous than your book, okay? Because everything you've said about fiction and autofiction and performance, doesn't it in a way... Well, I want to ask you whether you've had criticisms that you're travestying the autobiographical form, which is how trans people communicate the authenticity and the pain of their story. And there's a kind of cult of authenticity in a lot of the trans writing I've read, whether it's Dear Sir or Madam or April Ashley's amazing autobiography or whatever you want to call it. And for you to just walk into the middle of all of this and say, actually, we're making it all up as we go along... (laughs) I just would, I would love to know um, how people have reacted to that. But I had another question. I'm not sure if I can, I can't find the quote. There's a question I came with this evening. You know how you come all primed with your question. So there's a moment in here where I think you're quoting Feinberg. Mm. And you talk about the need to move beyond male versus female narratives. Mm. And then you quote a line where Feinberg says, so that we have the right to determine our lives and take control of our bodies. And I read this page over and over and over again and thought, wait a minute, these two things do not add up. Because getting past male and female puts you into a zone of indeterminacy and fluidity and ambiguity, whereas, which for me links with the unconscious and the depths of what it means to be a sexual person. But taking control of our identities and doing what we want with our bodies is a whole different discourse of mastery. And I just found myself thinking, how do you square that circle? So you can ignore the second question if you like. I I don't know if you do. Um, You know, I mean, one of the... The issues explored in this book, which is, is, you know, a lot of it's about the relationship between theory and lived experience, is just finding that actually a lot of the theoretical discussions, um, you know, I found were just basically unresolvable. There were sort of limits of knowledge, limits of what I was able to understand. Um, I mean, there's a bit in the book where that issue comes up much more simply, where I'm just talking about all the questions that I get asked by kind of outsiders, and that most of them just boil down to why. And I don't have an explanation as to why any more than I can explain why I'm left-handed. And, you know, to me, that wasn't the most important issue, actually. Um, You know, it's very, very far down my list of things to worry about. Um, I mean, there's an awful lot to respond to in in what you've just said. I mean, with regards to sort of travestying the autobiographical form, I mean, 
I don't think I really do that. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I've talked specifically about the dialogue tonight and, you know, the need to kind of invent dialogue that is kind of truthful but is not necessarily the exact words that were said in the exact time. But everything that happened in the book happened. Um, you know, there's, there's no outright invention. And, yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have written some sort of autofiction. Um, I think that would have been really interesting. But, you know, to have a central character who had my name and some of my experiences that, you know, maybe, um, you know, suffered some sort of violence or institutional prejudice or something that, you know, happened to other people didn't happen to me, that would, have, that would have been absolutely scandalous. I mean, that would have been absolutely the wrong way to sort of approach this material. I think it would have been appropriative. I think it would have been morally wrong. Um, so, you know, everything that happens in the book sort of happens in the place that it happened um, and, you know, happened to the best of my recollection. But, um, you know, all I have is my memory and the memory of my friends. Um, and there are limits to the reliability of that. Um, but, you know, I, I think this was done very much in good faith. I mean, I call the autobiographical format into question a lot in the text itself because a lot of trans people actually, there was a huge reaction against it. I mean, that whole line of theory that takes in people like Feinberg and Bornstein um, grows out of one of my favourite pieces of writing, uh, which I mention a lot in the text and in my other writing, which is The Empire Strikes Back, a post-transsexual manifesto by uh, Sandy Stone, who's really interesting, a uh, wonderful piece of writing. And Sandy Stone was um, a kind of digital and performance artist, an <coughs> academic um, was very into the early internet in the sort of mid-90s precisely because of the sort of elasticity it afforded to people to play with their identity kind of online, you know, the, on the internet no one knows you're a dog thing. Um, and so Stone was also uh, a sound engineer at Olivia Records, which was this all-women record collective set up in America. Um, and Olivia got targeted by a small number of quite vocal feminists who you know, didn't accept Stone's identity as a transsexual woman, didn't feel she should be working for Olivia, you know, tried to get her out. And in the end, she left of her own volition um, because, you know, she just felt it was causing too many problems for the company. Um, and then Janice Raymond wrote this book, The Transsexual Empire, which was a very uh, vociferous attack on transsexual people and particularly transsexual women um, for kind of simultaneously kind of uncritically reiterating very conservative heterosexual male stereotypes of what being a woman was, but also at the same time being politically aware enough of radical lesbian feminism to infiltrate those circles that anybody noticing, which doesn't really work. But um, uh, Stone sort of started off with that by um, not doesn't start with Janice Raymond. She starts with uh, people like Jan Morris and Lily Elba, these older transsexual memoirs, and kind of drawing out a lot of the things in them that have become cliches, mm. a lot of the ways in which she felt the move from male to female or, or, you know, what those concepts actually meant, you know, wasn't sufficiently explored. It wasn't sufficiently criticised. Um, there's a great bit in the text where she's analysing Lily Elba's memoir from 1933 where Elba has sex reassignment surgery and wakes up after to find herself writing with a woman's script. And Sandy Stone says, well, look, no wonder feminists have been suspicious. I'm suspicious. What's a woman's script? Why would your handwriting change after surgery? Um, you know, the critique of the autobiographical form, not the idea of autobiographical writing, but certain conventions, certain formal structure, 
that's kind of, I think, embedded throughout the book, um, you know, sits very much within that line of theoretical writing. Uh, but but the, the book is, is truthful. It's not autofiction. It couldn't be. Um, I mean, in terms of, of, you know, the sort of difficulties around um, a sort of control over identity and body, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we are... We're social beings. It's very hard to escape the sort of impositions of other people. Um, you know, there will always be uh, walls that we rub up against. And I've got this stuff wrong with other people too. I mean, you know, I'm part of the same kind of gender system as everybody else. I don't always get everything right. Um, but we're just kind of doing our best, really. Um, and, you know, with, with this book... Um, you know, in terms of the sort of compromises I felt in using these sort of traditional forms to get a different, you know, try and get a different way of thinking about these issues through to a wider public. Um, it's not perfect. Hopefully it's good. Um, but I just did my best with it. Hello. Hi. Um, I haven't read your book yet, so I apologise if I ask something that you've already answered. Um you talked a lot about uh, how you um, studied the you know theory around um, transgender and um, obviously feminism and definite general gender theory and I was wondering if you know if you're not um, you know if you find that you do not fit into that specific male or female you know box that has been sort of you know shaped by you know modern culture by you know the way that society defines those certain gender roles um and you then find that you know you fit in neither and you sort of look for your you know specific place in society and who you are and try to find your identity i'm just wondering in what terms um theory actually does it does it help you or does it more confuse you in in trying to figure out um, your identity, because I can imagine, you know, the more you, more, the more you theory you read, um, I've start, I just started reading that sort of theory, and I find it really confusing. And I was wondering, um, to what extent do you find yourself within that theoretical body of work, and to what extent do you feel it challenges um, who you are, or confuses you about who you are? Yeah, um, I mean, it definitely does both, and it's definitely always done both for me. Um, you know, in the book I write, I think it's chapter four, where I'm living in Brighton and starting to discover that line of theory in my sort of early 20s. And I didn't actually study it, but I was at the University of Sussex, where you're only ever about three feet away from somebody who is. Um, and, um, and, you know, that was how I kind of came across it, was through friends. So it was sort of, it was more kind of self-taught, really. Um, I mean, the problem I had, and it's something I talk about a lot early in the book, is that as a teenager I have these two words that deal with, with anything beyond the sort of accepted idea of male and female. And they were transvestite and transsexual, and that was it uh, in the 90s. And, you know, transvestite had these very um, kind of sexual connotations. It had a very negative image in the mainstream media, although Eddie Izzard was kind of dealing with that in a really interesting way. Um, so you had that, and then you had like transsexual, which you know denoted somebody who'd gone through a very specific medical process, uh, and you know that at that age didn't feel accurate either because I hadn't. Um, and so finding this concept of first of transgender and then 
of these really kind of creative approaches to to gender identity obviously opened a lot of doors for myself. It created this kind of grey space that I felt I could move within. Um, and to me, that was that was more helpful than confusing. But then opened up an interesting schism between my conception of what that meant and other people's. And you know, they're in the book, um, in the chapter leading up to the transition, I go out more and more as Juliet, and I sort of bump into friends around Brighton, and they kind of say, "Look, I didn't know you did this." Um, edging around, um, you know, putting a label on on my gender identity and presentation. Um, and, you know, they, they would ask me a question, you know, cross-dressery, transsexually, transvestite, and I would say I'm transgender, and they would say, like, what does that mean? And then I'd kind of think, oh, no, the whole point of this label was I didn't have to be too strict in defining myself at this point, but, you know, you're constantly kind of forced to. Um, and so it opened up a sort of different problem um, for a while, really. But on the whole, it was, it was very helpful... Um, Um, and um, and definitely something that I couldn't have have kind of realised myself without. Um, one thing I really liked actually um, was finding out that the uh, the French word for transgender is transgenre. Um, <laughs> and as somebody who you know has read too much Derrida, um, I found that really interesting. Uh, and you know, one of the things that Sandy Stone calls for in that manifesto that I just referenced. Um, is this very creative approach to, to sort of constructing your own kind of gender identity and, and, and suggesting there are infinite possibilities. Um, I don't know if I found the right one for me yet, but it certainly feels a lot more comfortable than where I was before I started engaging with all of that. Hi. Um, I just want to say I really enjoyed your talk. I wasn't aware of the book before tonight, but it was a great talk. I just had a question. Last week, the um, the fellow who wrote the book Sapiens, and I can never pronounce his name, I think it's Yuval Harari, but he was talking last week and he was um, talking about patriarchal, matriarchal societies. And he replied to somebody who had asked a question and said that it was his thought that perhaps in the future we won't really have gender at all anymore, that perhaps that this would be a possibility. And I was just interested in, in, in your thoughts about that. If, if you thought that if that was a possibility, would that be a good thing from your point of view? Um, it may well be a possibility. I mean, when I, I, you know, I talked earlier about um, trying to write a sort of history of trans people in Britain. Um, and a lot of um, what this history grew out of was this like Victorian late Victorian and early 20th century obsession with categorizing everything. Um, but even before that, it sort of grew out of, um, of the way the Victorian police kept arresting male-to-female cross-dressers around London um, and thinking they were sodomites. There wasn't the identity of the homosexual at that point. There was just people who commi- committed sodomy. Um, and they assumed that like male-to-female cross-dressers were sodomites because why would a man want to be a woman or like a woman unless it was for some sort of weird sexual purpose? They couldn't get their heads around it. Um, and so what you get in response to that is like late 19th, early 20th century sexologists trying to separate sexual diversity and gender variance, you know, in response to like the Oscar Wilde trial uh, and, you know, the, the Foucault history that talks about wild, the wild case in particular 
kind of codifying the figure of the homosexual. And through the 20th century, you get the codification of the figures of the transvestite, the transsexual, and then various other gender positions. Um, so it may well be that, you know, all of this work is basically just an effort to get back to where we were before, but um, just, you know, not with certain sexual acts prohibited. Um, and it takes quite a long time to undo all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, a world certainly without people having difficulties with their sort of gender identity or a sense that certain bodies have to come with a certain identity way of moving through the world. Um, it's not unthinkable um, that the discourse on that will substantively change um, over time. Uh, you know, not in our lifetimes, I don't think. But um, uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I don't know whether to say that's a good thing or not. I, I find it very hard to make a value judgment on that. It's a possibility. That's, that's all I feel, really. Thank you. Um, I, I enjoyed uh, all the talk very much. I particularly uh, enjoyed hearing about uh, your kind of conversations with friends about pe- people who were going in the book and kind of uh, the negotiation of, of dialogue and, and how you represent people. Um, I was wanting to know if Joe Stretch is the same Joe Stretch who was in the band We Are Performance. Yeah, they're I, in the book a lot. I, I, I like them very much. Um, <laughs> yeah, they were and, great. And, and, That's someone else appreciates them. <laughs> um, and I, I kind of I, I want to know, I guess, having not written the memoir, is, is it like that thing of, of being on social media and presenting a version of yourself? Do, do you kind of want to embellish? Do you want to... Ibrahimovicify yourself and kind I'd of. I'd love to <laughs> Yeah. Um, how, how do you resist that temptation to just kind of redraft in a way to, to make it? Um, you know, more, I, I don't mean, know, more that's what I was saying in response to one of the earlier questions. You know, I think there is there is a contract between you and the reader um, that the book is going to be honest. Um, uh, you know, the sort of confessional journalism I talked about, memoir writing. That is the contract, and the, the Ibrahimovic thing was such a story precisely because that contract had been broken, and there were discussions over, you know, how big a transgression was that? Is it a crime? And it's not like, who was it? Was it James Frey who wrote that book? Um, what's that? James Frey. Yeah, it's James Frey, and he wrote, I, I can't remember what it was. Um, was it A Million Little Pieces? And was it, it was about addiction, wasn't it? Or, and he just made the whole thing up. Uh, and it was presented as memoir and then sort of represented as fiction. It was, you know, a big scandal. Um, uh, so those sorts of things, you know, sort of move you away from embellishment. I mean, an interesting tension here um, was that, you know, I talked a lot about trans people kind of reacting against the kind of memoir form um, and a related reaction against sort of media sensationalism. So I had a sort of interesting tension between an editor... Um, who, you know, wanted a book that they felt would sell and would, you know, include ways of writing about myself um, that, that, that could be marketed a certain way and me saying, well, actually, look, the trans community, um, you know, we want something more quotidian. What we want more is a book that says this is very, very normal, um, which, which were two very difficult impulses to kind of resolve. Um, and, you know, it's, it's difficult for me, you know, it's also difficult for me um, to just write a book that is entirely quotidian. Um, and there's certain places where I, I feel I managed to make that work, like particularly the ending, um, which I won't 
give away, but involves me not really doing anything. Um, and um, that was certainly an issue. So, so that kind of acted against embellishing things, because actually the temptation was to go the other way and downplay things and make everything kind of smaller than it was. Um, and maybe that's a particularly British thing as well, I don't know. Um, it's certainly not a problem that uh, Ibrahimovic suffers from. But, um, uh, yeah, um, yeah, getting that balance right was a, was a really interesting tension in the writing process, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Oh, no, I don't want to be the last one. <laughs> we'll have one more. Yeah. I, I really loved your book, um, and it confounded me brilliantly because I was expecting a memoir, and I felt that I got a kind of anti-memoir that, that seems to reveal everything but actually reveals nothing, and that that was very kind of fertile and, and brilliant. And I could understand some of the sort of political and personal reasons why that might have been the case. You, you've, in fact, you've, you talk about them in the book, and you've talked about them tonight. But, but I just sort of want to say this, and it might sound wrong or odd, but... If I was, which I'm not, if I was writing a memoir uh, that dealt with in any way at all questions of gender and sexuality and all those kind of things, I'd feel almost compelled to talk about in a kind of psychoanalytic vein of what formed me of the formative years of the childhood, of the parents, of the early, you know, of the things that... And so I can imagine why you wouldn't do that, but can you just talk about that? Yeah, I mean, so I talked about the first draft of the book just not working and being kind of flat and not having enough of myself in it, Um, being too scared to reveal a lot of things that I didn't really want to give away. Um, But the second draft nearly didn't work as well because um, I started off by writing two chapters about my kind of early childhood. Uh, And firstly, that put the book into a sort of linear format that, you know, as somebody who's a fan of of more sort of modernist and postmodernist writing, just on a formal level, I I didn't like that. Um, But also, I felt that really made the book kind of fall into certain cliches that I wanted to sort of deconstruct. You know, lots of trans memoirs sort of start with, look, I knew I was different as a child. Um, and, and a sort of, yeah, a sort of exploration of, of early childhood. And I mean, that is in the book. But, um, you know, what I realised was that I tried to write those two chapters. I just couldn't bring myself into the book. I mean, another structural problem with writing about early childhood at the beginning of the book is that um, I realised I had this gender identity issue at the age of about 10, and I didn't come out to anybody until I was 16. And even then, like the next two years, I'm at Sixth Form College um, in, uh, in Horsham. And, um, you know, I sort of cross-dress occasionally at home and very occasionally at parties with a handful of friends. But I'm not really publicly living my gender identity to any extent. And I realised the narrative would work better if it started at university in Manchester because away from home, away from, you know, a small town. Uh, I could explore these things a lot more. Um, so what you had with these two or even three kind of chapters before the age of 18 is sort of 10,000 words of book where I am unable to discuss the main plot point, really, except to say I couldn't tell anyone. Um, and it actually works a lot better to start the narrative with the surgery because that gave you the sort of sense of self that the... Um, the childhood chapters couldn't do because the surgery, firstly, is made very clear. It's a direct importation of the Guardian article I wrote on it. So you get this kind of issue of writing about gender issues structured into that first chapter. And, you know, the surgery chapter brings in a lot of the key friendships, interest in music and football and reading and poetry and all the other things that are embedded through the book as well as the actual gender identity issue. Uh, and then the book starts uh, as an undergraduate in Manchester, 
thinking about how good it is to have got out of small town Surrey and it doesn't quite work out in the way I wanted it to. Um, but then the childhood stuff is sort of embedded back through the book and basically, you know, my uh, editor, you know, we, we talked about how to write the childhood chapters and he sort of said, look, can you, um, you know, getting the register right was really difficult. I couldn't write, you know, like a sort of 10 to 15 year old child for a number of reasons. I don't have any diaries. I'm not really friends with anyone that I was friends with at the time. And I was just like a really weird and sort of irritatingly pretentious and sort of pseudo wise kid. Um, and, you know, so I couldn't really write with the sort of naivety that would be kind of believable for a 10 year old. Precisely, I didn't really feel it would be believable for me to write in that voice. I didn't believe it. Readers wouldn't believe it. So the way I dealt with that, I mean, you talk about the sort of psychoanalytic side of it. Uh, and the way I dealt with that was in, I think, chapter five begins with me just having a bit of a breakdown in like a really shit job um, and going to see um, a therapist through the company's um, employee support scheme, which frankly was the least they could fucking do. But um, <laughs> it's legal in general in Brighton. Don't work there. And um, so I went to see the therapist. And then, of course, you know, I go in and kind of saying, look, I feel really alienated and everything and I hate my job and nothing's really working out for me. And she takes you right back to early childhood and we immediately start talking about the gender stuff. And, you know, at that point, I realised actually this is the fundamental issue. So the childhood stuff is sort of weaved back into the book like that. And that felt like a much more um, just doable way of incorporating it. Um, thank you all very much for your questions. Chloe, thank you for your questions. Juliet, most, uh, most of all, thank you for writing the book. Thank you for coming and talking about it this evening. Please stick around, have a drink, buy the book, read the book if you haven't. I urge you, honestly, it's, it's, it's all sorts of wonderful things. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Juliet and Chloe, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.